Bible prophecy is often misunderstood and misapplied, which leaves many people confused or fearful. But when the Bible is studied in its proper context, prophecy becomes clear and understandable. There is no one we can trust more than Jesus, and His words will speak specifically to us as we study them in their simplicity. Welcome to Jesus on Prophecy. Lord, we know that there's a special message that you have in store for us tonight. And so, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be upon us, to give us wisdom, and to give us a beautiful picture of Jesus. Uh, hide me behind the cross, and may Jesus be clearly seen today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stress. How much is too much. How many of you had a stressful day today? Okay, a few of you. <laughs> and we all had those days. Uh, but, you know, what is the threshold of our tolerance for stress? You know, the scientists actually wanted to discover that, and they wanted to see how much stress human beings can handle. And so, they wanted, to, they wanted to discover how much pressure can we take without breaking. And so they decided to do some experiments on lambs. That's right, lambs. And they took a lamb and put a particular lamb in a pen so that they could see the lamb, but the lamb could not see it. It's probably like a one-sided window, right, or something, as they're doing this observation. And... Uh, the researchers put 14 different feeding stations in this area where this lamb was placed. And the, they hooked up electrodes to each of the feeding stations. And as the lamb would eventually get hungry and try to seek a station to nibble at, uh, as the lamb began to eat from a particular feeding station, whichever feeding station it was, the research would press a button and it would put a shock to that lamb. So the lamb was like jolted and, and surprised and, you know, was, was a little afraid and startled by that shock. And over time, the, the lamb calmed down and the lamb decided to try a different feeding station and walk over there to take a nibble. And as he started eating, they shocked it again. The lamb nervously twitched and bolted, and he began running around the pen looking for a secure place to eat. And finally, they shocked this lamb at every single feeding station. And the lamb was so nervous, so anxious, it was so stressed, that it stumbled in the center of the pen and began to quiver, and it died of a nervous breakdown. The load of anxiety was just too great. Well, the study continues. It doesn't end there. The researchers then took the lamb's twin and put it in the same pen. But there is one difference. This time, they put the lamb's mother in the pen with this little lamb. And the little lamb went to the first feeding station and started to nibble at that feeding station and the researcher shocked that lamb. And what do you think the lamb did? The lamb went, bah, bah. the lamb was like so scared and fearful and it ran to its mother. And said, bah, bah. And the mother went, bah, bah. 
And that little lamb did not run from the first feeding station, but kept on eating. And the researchers wondered, hey, what's going on here? This is a different, different uh, outcome here. And they shocked the little lamb again. And the little lamb got shocked and goes, bah, bah. And the mother says, bah, bah. And the lamb kept eating. The research shocked the lamb again. And the little lamb went over to the mama, and the mama sheep whispered something in the little lamb's ear. Bah, bah. And now, this is where the scientific research broke down. They're not quite sure what mama sheep said to the little lamb. But anyway, little lamb ran back and ate exactly where she was eating before. But what was the difference? The first lamb had no place to run. The second lamb had the security that there was somebody there. Somebody who can bear the burdens. And so that leads us to our first question tonight. As we're thinking about that story, who can bear our burdens? Who can handle our guilt? Who can handle our worry and anxiety? Who can give us that security when the burdens of life and the stresses of life weigh us down? Who do we turn to? Is there a refuge in the time of the storms of our life? In our trauma, is there a place of security that we can run to? And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and let's turn to Isaiah 53, verse 4. Isaiah 53 verse 4. And uh, what we do every night is we're trying to get the answer from the Bible. Every question that we're covering tonight, we want the Bible to give us the answer. Not me. And what we're going to do is we're going to allow, if you haven't been here before, we allow each and every table to read the text. And also all of you can participate in giving me the answer. You will be the teachers each and every night with the Bible being your reference. Amen? So Isaiah 53, verse 4. Uh, how many of you know what Isaiah 53, that chapter, is regarding? Isaiah 53 is actually a prophecy. Did you know that? It's a prophecy regarding the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And it says here in Isaiah 53, verse 4, and if we could have someone from table number 1, can we, and by the way, before we call on each table, if the table leaders can determine pre, beforehand who's going to read the verse when we call on that table, that would be great. Okay, so let's do that. Uh, but let's take a look at Isaiah 53, verse 4, and table number one. Is there someone there to read this verse for us? Ah, okay, thank you. So we see, who can bear our burdens based on that text? Jesus. It's referring to Jesus. Surely, it's saying, speaking of Jesus, surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. How many of you guys are thankful that Jesus bears those burdens for us tonight? Amen. So you know the answer is yes. There is someone big enough to carry what we cannot carry. There is someone that we can run to when the stresses of life press us down. And we see that it's none other than Jesus. And I'm thankful for that. 
We see that the book of Revelation reveals Jesus Christ in all His splendor, in all His beauty. It presents Him as returning to earth in power and great glory. And we see that He is the commander of heaven's armies, while in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is both the lion of the tribe of Judah and a lamb that has been slain. And Jesus is pictured as the mighty conqueror, the overcomer, the powerful one, because He died for the sins of the world. And angels cry out, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. That's what they say. That's what they refer to Jesus as. The Lamb. You know, it's very interesting. This is something that uh, you have to think about. But did you know when Jesus first came, he came as a, a lamb, right? He came to die for our sins, right? That's why that was his purpose of coming the first time. And after he died on Calvary, what happened? Jesus went where? To heaven. And now he's been there ever since serving as our high priest. And he's still doing that work right now, the Bible tells us. But also, Jesus is going to come a second time. And when Jesus comes the second time, He's not going to come as a lamb. He's going to come as a lion, a conquering king, the king of beasts. He's going to come as a king. So you see that Jesus, on His first coming, He comes as a lamb. When He goes to heaven, He's the high priest. When He comes down out of heaven for His second coming, He comes as a conquering king to establish His kingdom, which we learned a few nights ago, that His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom which will have no end. But that, that is still yet to happen. But it will happen because prophecy foretells it. In the first chapter of Revelation, it, it refers to Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Do you know what Alpha and Omega means? Beginning and the end, yes. But uh, Alpha and Omega are both letters from the Greek alphabet. Did you know that? So, according to our vernacular, it's equivalent to us saying he is A to Z, right? He is the beginning to the end. Everything that encapsulates the language, and Jesus is called the Word, right? The Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The very Word, Jesus is the Word personified, and fitly so, he is called the Alpha and the Omega. Everything that is in existence is because of his Word. He spoke everything into existence, Right? And so, indeed, He is the Alpha and the Omega. We see that Jesus is the mighty high priest that stands before God and intercedes for us tonight. He is shown in Revelation walking among the candlesticks. In Revelation chapter 1, it talks about Jesus walking among the seven candlesticks. And according to Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, you can write that down really quickly there, the candlesticks represent the churches. Right? Which is encouraging because in a world that is beset by sin where life is a struggle because, and many people are even ready to give up on the church. You know, have you ever heard people say, I don't want to come to church anymore because there's people that hurt me in that church. Have you heard that? You know, Jesus understands. Jesus knows what you're going through. But many people are ready to give up on the church. But Jesus... He's portrayed as walking among the candlesticks, walking among the churches. He is carefully monitoring how the churches are doing, what He can do to bestow, to allow their light to continue to shine. Clearly, He has not given up 
on the church. And the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 simply says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, as we have seen many times throughout the times we meet, met together. The book of Revelation is prophetic, but it also reveals Jesus both as the Alpha and the Omega, the conquering King, but it also reveals Him as much more. The book is revealing of His primary role, which we're going to study tonight. What was Jesus' primary role? But let's take a look at all the different titles of Jesus throughout the book of Revelation. We see in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, let's turn there now, and table number 2, uh, we have Patricia there at table number 2. Patricia, can you read Revelation 1, verse 5? And I would like us all to do the same, and I'd like you to just follow along as Patricia reads. It's page 1174. 1174 in your Bibles. But uh, Revelation 1, 5, and we'll have Patricia read this for us. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Mm. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Ah, so there's a lot of titles there, right? It says that he is the faithful witness, and also he is the what? Firstborn of the dead, right? So we see that Jesus, He went to the grave, He came and, 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 and He overcame death. Isn't that right? And so He can comfort men and women whose hearts are broken by death. He's a ruler over the kings of the earth. His power and might are supreme in the universe. And we look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. It also describes Christ in that chapter where it talks about this prophecy. Well, it's, it's already taken place, but it's talking about she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with the rod of iron. And he is that male, male child born of Mary. He is the Savior who faced Satan's temptations head-on and was victorious. And Revelation 2, 12, 5 continues, it says, And her child was caught up to God and His throne. So Christ ascended to heaven, and He still lives to carry our burdens and minister to our needs. The Bible teaches that He is our high priest. And Revelation chapter 14, it describes Jesus as coming to reap the harvest of the earth. And we see in Revelation 14, 14, it says, let's take a look at Revelation 14, 14. We don't want to miss this. Uh, we have table number four. Can someone read that? Page 1184, Revelation 14, 14. Page 1184, and we're going to read this together. Can someone from table four read this verse? Revelation 14, 14. Then I looked and behold, white clouds, and on the cloud sat one like the son of man, having one in his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. Wow, so here's a picture of Jesus coming down with a sickle, and that sickle is used to harvest the grain, right? And so that's what he's coming to do. He's coming to harvest his people. Those are truly his people. He's going to harvest them at this time. He's going to take them home to his heavenly uh, storehouse to have them live with him for eternity. So we see that although he does that, he also will address sin and sinners once and for all when he comes as well. Revelation chapter 19 describes Jesus as the conquering king come riding on a symbolic horse. That horse is symbolic of victory, conquest, 
triumph. Jesus finally overcomes everything, every power on this earth, and he comes riding on that white horse. He is the one who has never lost a battle. He is the general that has never lost a war. He is the one who will defeat Satan at the end. And we see that from Revelation 1 to Revelation 22, there is a hero, friends, that is depicted very clearly all throughout that book, and that is none other than Jesus Christ. All the symbols of Christ in Revelation, the symbol that perhaps is more uh, prominent that we need to take heed to tonight is that Jesus, yes, he's a symbol. He's a, of all these things. He is the, the lion. He is the faithful witness. He uh, is the one who's going to come in the harvest. But the symbol that we want to pay attention to tonight is that he is the lamb, the dying lamb. And we see that this is very interesting because in the book of Revelation, Jesus is described as the lamb 27 times throughout the book of Revelation. Did you know that? And take a look at one of the many verses that, uh, re- that refers to him as such. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, it says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been slain. Right? So, so John is describing a bloody lamb seen up in heaven as though it was slain but it's still standing in the midst of the throne. Now notice that revelation is symbolic. Okay, This is not talking about a literal lamb that is in heaven that is slain standing on a throne. This is depicting none other than who is the lamb. Jesus. It's referring to Jesus. That that lamb is a symbol of Jesus. And we see in Revelation chapter 13 verse 8, it says, "...the lamb slain from the foundation of the world." Sometime in distant ages of eternity, the Father and the Son met in divine counsel. They came together and they tried to come up with a plan to save fallen humanity. And in His infinite love, heaven was prepared for the possibility of sin, should sin enter into the picture. And we see that in Revelation chapter 12, it describes a dragon-like beast that attacks the Lamb and it makes war with His followers. And in Revelation chapter 12, uh, verse 11, is where we want to go to. So if we could have table number 7, read that verse. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, this is page 1182. Page 1182. You don't want to miss this. Okay, this is really powerful. This actually holds a key for us as Christians a key to victory. And Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, page 1182, and do we have someone in table 7 to read that? Okay, David, we'll read that for us. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. Wow. So, not their lives Amen, amen. So they said that they overcame him. Him meaning the dragon. Okay, and who's the dragon? Satan, that's right. They overcame the dragon, Satan. How did they overcome him? By the blood of the Lamb, right? And also by the word of their testimony. What does that mean? You know, when it says the blood of the Lamb, what is that referring to? 
Jesus on the cross. Exactly. Yeah, Jesus on the cross of Calvary. The blood of Jesus is the key to our victory. It is a source of our overcoming power over the enemy. The power of the blood of Jesus can transform our lives, friends, and infuse us with the power to overcome. Isn't that awesome? And also, we live our lives as a result of what He has provided for us on the cross. And that also allows us to be living testimonies of what God can do in a person's life who claims the merits of Christ and His righteousness. So when we claim the blood of Jesus in our lives and we experience that overcoming power in our lives, we are living uh, examples of what the blood of Christ can do for those who have taken Christ up on that offer for the power that He can work in us. And so our testimonies become powerful. Our testimonies are living evidence that we have crushed the serpent and that we have overcome him through the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Amen. And so the Lamb triumphs over the dragon. The Lamb defeats all those powers that attack him and his followers. The Lamb triumphs over every false religion. And in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, it says, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will what? Overcome them. We see, you, if you and I are on the Lamb's side, we're on the winning side. Amen? And how many of you want to be on the Lamb's side tonight? Amen. We want to be on the side of Jesus. And it goes on to say in verse 14 of chapter 17, it says, For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. In the book of Revelation, the Lamb wins and Satan loses. Praise God. Now let's go to question number two for tonight. Why would God, in the book of Revelation, choose something as helpless, weak, and innocent as a lamb to represent His Son? Okay, now that's a good question. Why would God choose a lamb to depict His Son? And so we're going to go ahead and take a look in the symbolism of the lamb throughout the Bible. And the symbolism of a lamb reaches down all the way to the beginning of the Bible, right? And so the understanding of this lamb is very key because all of us, I'm sure, have struggled with the burden of guilt, the burden of shame, the, the bondage of sin, and, and you question whether you have the assurance of eternal life. And we see that Adam and Eve since they disobeyed a direct command of God not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to disobey a command of God is called a what? Sin. And God told Adam and Eve that if they disobeyed and ate of that tree, they would what? Die. They would perish. That's right. And the Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said... You must bring a sacrifice, a substitute, a lamb that will die in your place so that you will not have to die. And we're now speaking of the Old Testament sacrifices. Moses in the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus says, in Leviticus 17.11, For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. For the life of the flesh is in the what? Blood. So when we have sinned, our life is required. Our blood must be 
pay, must be spilt uh, to pay for those wages of sin. So blood represents life. Wages of sin is death. The penalty of, of disobeying God's direct command is death. So shedding the blood of the Lamb represents the payment of those wages. Throughout the Old Testament, God instructed His people to bring animal sacrifices. And, you know, to illustrate this in its clarity, God told the Israelites to build what was called a sanctuary, a tabernacle. You remember that? And every day, animal sacrifices were slain at this sanctuary. But what did it mean? What did it mean when a sinner brought his lamb to the sanctuary? And can an animal atone for a life of a man? Or did it all symbolize something more? Now let's imagine in those days there was an Israelite named Eliab. Okay? And Eliab gets angry with his neighbor. And they fight. And he hits his neighbor in the face and knocks him to the ground. And the poor man has a bloody nose and mouth. That night, as Eliab comes to evening prayer, he has a sense that he has sinned. A sense that he has wronged his neighbor. And he goes to his neighbor. He says, I am so sorry. I I lost my cool and I, I didn't mean to harm you like that. But even though he asks for that forgiveness from his neighbor, this guilt rests upon Eliab, and Eliab knows that he must bring a lamb to the sanctuary. And the next morning, he takes a lamb, a pure, spotless lamb. And Eliab walks through the camp of Israel, and as he's walking through the camp of Israel with the lamb, perhaps on a leash or whatever, to lead him along, all the neighbors see, there's Eliab! And he has a lamb next to him. Oh, he must have done something. And he knows that he sinned. He knows that he is guilty. With humility of heart, he makes his way to the sanctuary. And Eliab comes to the sanctuary. And he kneels and places his hand on the head of that animal. And he confesses his sin. And he then plunges the knife in the throat of that lamb. And as he does, the blood runs down his knee and the animal's life ebbs away and falls limp and it dies. The priest catches the blood in a basin and the animal is put on the brazen altar and his flesh is consumed on the altar. And the priest brings some of the blood into the sanctuary Before Eliab came to the sanctuary, he was weighed down with the burden of guilt. But as he confessed his sin over the head of that animal, that innocent animal, something amazing happens. The Bible tells us what that thing, what happens. In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 5 and 6, it's page 96 in your Bibles. So let's have someone from table number 8 read that for us. What amazing thing happened to Eliab when he made that sacrifice of that lamb? Leviticus chapter 5, verse 5 and 6 tells us, page 96 in your Bibles. Can someone in table 8 read that for us, please? Leviticus 5, 5 and 6, page 96. Someone have it in table 8? <laughs> and it shall be when he is guilty in any of these matters that he shall confess. 
And verse 6. Thank you so much. So when Eliab confessed his sin, the guilt of that sin is now where? Where? Is passed over into the sacrificial animal. That's right, to the lamb. The animal then becomes symbolically guilty. Right? And since the wages of sin is death, since Eliab's sin caused the animal to die, it is Eliab himself who must take the knife and slay the animal. The animal falls dead, and we see that his carcass is placed on the altar, blood is taken to the sanctuary, and sprinkled in the veil before the law of God in the Ark of the Covenant. And Eliab disobeyed. He broke the Ten Commandment law. He deserves to die, but the sacrifice died instead, and Eliab was free from the guilt and penalty. So, question number three, why did God require these sacrifices? Now, I know that we have some animal lovers here, and the idea of killing an animal is very like, oh, that's terrible, right? But why did God require these sacrifices? Did those animals give the sinner eternal life? If so, then we should all just kill an animal, and we have eternal life. Is that how it works? No. Did the animal cleanse the people from their sin? No. But did those animals did those animals point to a better sacrifice? Yes. That's right. In the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, we find a key to understand what these sacrifices pointed toward. In Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 and 12. Let's turn to page 1153 in your Bibles. Hebrews 9 11 and 12, page 1153 in your Bibles. I believe we're on table number 9. If someone can be ready to read that as we look that up together. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12, page 1153. Why did God require these sacrifices? Did they point to a better sacrifice? And someone said yes. So let's take a look and see what Hebrews brings out here. Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. Are we there? If you're there, say amen. All right. So let's uh, have someone from table number nine. Can we have someone read that for us, please? Ah, so we see here, not with the blood of what? Goats and calves, but with whose blood? Jesus' blood. He entered into the most holy place. And what did he obtain for us? He obtained what? Eternal redemption. Doesn't that sound so nice? It's, it's a redemption that is eternal. You know, there's no, there's no uh, expiration date to that redemption. That rede- redemption is for, forever. And we see in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. The blood of sacrificial animals foreshadows the shed blood of Christ. The sanctuary services in the Old Testament were designed to teach us God's plan of salvation. A number of years ago, 
a woman in her 40s, attended a series of meetings just like this one, just like the one you guys came. And she came to the preacher one night for counsel. She carried a great deal of guilt, and she didn't know what to do. And she told the pastor, you know, I've done something terrible, and I have a hard time talking about it. And she told the pastor of an affair that she had 17 years before with a married man that had resulted in an abortion. And she said, Pastor, for 17 years I've carried this burden of guilt. This guilt has crushed my spirit. It has taken the joy out of my life. I know what I did 17 years ago was so tragically wrong. But I can't bring that life back, that little life back of that child. It's breaking my heart. The pastor gently responded. And he said, you know, if you lived in Old Testament times, you would bring a lamb and confess your sin over the head of that lamb. The guilt would then be transferred to the lamb. And the lamb would die for your sin, symbolically. Then the blood will be taken to the sanctuary, and you can walk away free knowing that your burden of guilt is off your back. The pastor continued, but we are not living in Old Testament times. And your problem is that you don't have a lamb and you haven't accepted a Savior, which is Jesus. And friends, we see that if we come before Jesus, confessing our sin, that burden of guilt that is on your shoulders as ever weighing upon you will be taken off. And that guilt will be wiped clean because there was a lamb. Every lamb or sacrifice pointed forward to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ Himself. So when we look to the Lamb of God, that woman, she looked to the Lamb of God after the pastor told her that, and she confessed her sin in prayer to God and accepted the sacrifice made for her, and she found her burden lifted. And she found repentance and forgiveness as a result. Question number four. But what about us today? Is Jesus willing to allow us to be free and forgiven today as well? Does His blood cover our sin? You know, to be free from guilt, we must first acknowledge it. A sinner in the Old Testament would never be free from guilt until they acknowledged it by bringing their lamb. And it's only as we acknowledge our guilt and then go in prayer confessing to God, if necessary, to the one we have wronged, then find forgiveness and relief from that guilt. We say, God, I understand that I have sinned against you. I lost my temper. I got angry. I've been filled with lust. I've been dishonest. Whatever it may be, this seems like a very basic concept, but it's often overlooked. Before we can be freed from our addictions... And the pain that keeps us going back to them. We must be willing to stop hiding them from God. When we acknowledge that we are guilty, then we confess to God the specifics of what we have done. Having done those two things, we have the privilege of freely accepting Jesus, the Lamb of God, as our substitute. 
The wages of sin is death. But that's not how that verse ends, does it? (laughs) What does it say? In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but... Aren't you thankful for that but? (laughs) Thank goodness the verse doesn't end there, amen? There's that word but that adds on to that. But the gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift of God, friends can be freely accepted. It's not wages. It's not something that you work towards or earn towards. It's not a series of good deeds that qualifies us to receive it. When a friend offers a gift, we don't say, hey, how much do I have to pay you for this? Right? You don't do that. A gift is to be what? Simply received. And we see that having accepted that gift, we believe God's promises. Believing doesn't convince God to do something because He's already done it. Believing is the act of choosing. Listen carefully. Believing is the act of choosing to continue in our acceptance of the free gift. Belief provides the bond that causes us to hold on to what God has already willingly provided for you. As an Israelite followed God's plan in the sanctuary so long ago, the guilt of their transgression was by faith removed from them. Their guilt was gone. And you and I can have that same experience tonight. If I come to Jesus and confess my sin, the burden of my guilt is rolled away. Jesus Christ... The divine lamb was slain for you and me. And what happened on that cross in Calvary was far more than the blood of animals being shed. We see in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Let's take a look there. Hebrews 9, 14. Who's the next table over there? Table number 10, is it? Let's have someone from table number 10 read with a nice loud voice. Uh, Page 1153. Page 1153. Hebrews 9, verse 14. Eleven fifty three Hebrews nine fourteen. What happens on the cross the day that Jesus died and his blood was shed for us? Hebrews nine fourteen. Ah, so your conscience will be what as a result of what Jesus has done? Your conscience will be Cleansed. Your guilt will be forever removed. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. Amen. Now, question number five. Have you heard people say this? But I'm not a bad person. Won't God consider all the good things I've done? Right? Well, we see that good works, as good as they are, will not save you. You may be able to muster some good works uh, and good things in life, but what about the bad things? With God, good behavior cannot make up for bad behavior. Your only chance to be right with God is to possess total goodness. That means you should have never sinned at all, even once, in order to be deemed righteous. So, you know, when you are trying to compensate 
for your failures in the past by trying to do good works to outweigh somehow the good works. If I just do enough good works, it can outweigh the bad works and and I'm going to make it. It doesn't work that way. It has to be all or nothing. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Doesn't matter how much good works we try to lay up on the table to try to earn our way back into favor with God, it's just not going to happen. It's impossible. It cannot be found in any of us, but it can be found in one place. Where? Through Jesus. Through Jesus Christ alone. So if we lay a hold of Jesus' goodness by faith, which He invites us to do, That's the good news. Jesus says, take my good life. Take my good works. Take my righteousness. Hold on to me by faith and I will make it possible for you. I will give you the power to stand before God as a righteous person through what I have done for you. Friends, Jesus offers you that very thing tonight. And it is the everlasting gospel that the book of Revelation speaks of. This is what Christ has made to secure our eternal redemption. Amen? Amen. And you and I could come to Jesus and we can kneel before Him and say, God, I failed. God, I know I failed. God, please wash away my sin and take away that guilt. And you know that the blood that Christ shed for you on Calvary pardons our sins, cleanses our consciences, consciences and reconciles us to God. To believe that God in reality does these things for us lifts our burden of guilt. There's only one who can take away our guilt. Friends, people need forgiveness today, do they not? We need it desperately because guilt does terrible things to us. Guilt can rob us of peace. Guilt can destroy our lives. And there's only one who could take away our sins. There's only one who could redeem us. The one who died. And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Let's take a look there. 1114. Page 1114 in your Bibles. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, 1114. We're on table number... 11? Is that right? Okay, so if someone from table number 11 could read 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So get this. It says, for he, who's he? That is God, made him, who's him? That is Jesus, who knew no sin, To be what? Sin for us. Why did He do this? That we might become the what? Righteousness of God. In Him. In Christ. We have found a valuable treasure here in this text. This is the key for our eternal salvation. The righteousness that is impossible for us to muster because we've all fallen short, is provided for us in Him, in Christ and His righteousness. Did Jesus ever sin, brothers and sisters? No. Did He become sin for us? Yes. He who knew no sin became sin for us. 
And when Jesus hung on that cross, he experienced more than the pain of nails in his hands and feet, or the crown of thorns upon his head. It was more than blood running down his face. It was more than the physical suffering that he would endure. When Jesus hung on that cross, the darkness of sin enshrouded Him. It hid Him from the Father's face. And that's why as Jesus hung there, so alone, dying, He cried out, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? Jesus was experiencing what we rightfully should have experienced. The total separation from God. Jesus willingly experienced that for us so that we would never have to experience that. Jesus was bearing your guilt. All the guilt of humanity was upon Him in that Garden of Gethsemane. All the guilt. Can you imagine? Like we cannot even handle one guilty thought. One guilty thought will crush us, right? But Jesus, He was taking all the guilt from every human being that was on this earth and it's all coming at Him all simultaneously at once. How would that make Him feel? It literally almost crushed Him to death if it wasn't the cross that killed Him. That could have killed Him alone. But Jesus endured that. Why? Because His goal was to save us. His goal was to to bear that burden of guilt for us because He knew that we couldn't bear it. And your burden today can be rolled away because He did that very act. Praise the Lord for that. And we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, this this text, page 1125. Let's have someone read this. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, page 1125. We're table number 11. Or 12? Table number 12. Can we have someone read Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, page 1125? This is a marvelous text. Let's all follow along as we read this. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, 1125. Thank you for reading that marvelous text. It says, For by grace we are saved through faith, not of what? Works, lest any man should boast, but it is the what? Gift of God. Right? We see that salvation is a gift, friends. When does God give this gift to you? When? When does He give this gift to you? He gives it to you now. It's free for the taking now. In this very moment, He offers that gift to every person on earth. And when by faith we say, Lord, give me the gift of salvation, I come with an open heart. I come to the cross. I come believing that Jesus is my Lamb. I kneel before the cross. I confess my sin. And the burden of guilt is taken off my shoulders. It is put on Jesus. And I am forgiven. 
and redeemed. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18, it says, You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Redemption is a gift. Have you disobeyed and done that which you knew to be wrong? Well, you could come now. Come with all your guilt. Come with all your sins. And Jesus will gladly take that burden off your back. Question number six. How can we receive what Jesus is freely offering us? Okay, so this is going to be something that I'd like you to write down because we're going to go over five simple steps to this question. How can we receive what Jesus is freely offering us tonight? And friends, I would like to pray that we all follow these steps as individuals and not forfeit the precious gift that God offers us. Amen? Amen. And so let's take a look at these five simple steps to receive the gift of eternal life. And we see that we must receive this gift by faith, by believing that God will give it to us because of His goodness, not our own. But by receiving Jesus, how do we receive Jesus? We receive, we accept, and believe in the power of the Word of God. And so we see that Jesus is that Word. So to accept the Bible truth is to accept Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. We cannot really accept Jesus without accepting His words and teachings. And brothers and sisters, I want to ask you, would you let God's Word be the authority in your life tonight? If so, say amen. 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 And so let's take a look at these five simple steps. Number one, accept the fact that God loves you. Accept the fact that what? God loves you. you. Do you believe that, friends? Well, if you don't believe it, I encourage you to look up Jeremiah 31.3. It doesn't say it any better than that. It says, For I have loved you with everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness I have drawn you. This verse just oozes with the love of God. Right? The love of God that, that never runs dry. The love of God that's always constant there. God loves you with an everlasting love, with loving kindness. He's also drawing you to Himself. And the fact that you guys came to these seminars is a proof that God is still drawing you. Amen. That's why I'm so encouraged to see you here today. I know that the Lord has drawn you here tonight. And I pray that the Lord will continue to draw you here every night as you see the beautiful picture of Jesus night after night. And we see, step number two, recognize that you cannot save yourself. Recognize that you cannot save yourself. That you have no power to, de- to deliver yourself from guilt, sin, and a selfishness that we all have in our hearts. It's so inherent in us. And we cannot free ourselves from that. You cannot go to a self-help seminar. You cannot sit at a motivational speaker and see what they say, how you could change your life. As good as it may sound, all this positive thinking, but you yourself cannot do that. You're not capable of that because we have a sinful heart. We have a sinful nature. We're tainted with sin. And the only way that we can overcome that is through the Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the only one that could give us that power and to change us from the inside out. We have to first allow Him into our lives. But before we do that, we have to realize, I can do nothing to save myself. I desperately need you, Jesus. 
Please help me. I'm at the mercy of my lustful uh, lust. I'm at the mercy of my temper and I cannot overcome it, but you can make that change in me. Help me. And when you pray that prayer, you're opening your heart completely to allow God to unleash His power into your life. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. We are justified freely. Nothing that we can do, nothing that we can add, no good works that we can add to that. It's only by Him alone. By His grace, He justifies us freely. He redeems us through Jesus Christ. Step number three, believe that Jesus can and will save you. We need to believe that. Jesus has the power to save you. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. There's no power on earth that can do this, friends, because it is a creative power. Many of us are looking for an outward change. We don't like the way that we act or speak or other outward circumstances. Many of us look for a quick outward fixes. We focus on externals, but Jesus works from the inside. He changes the heart. He recreates the life. The Bible tells us that when He died, He didn't just die for your sins, but He lives so that your life can be like His. Amen. Amen. And He can change the course of your life by changing the core of your heart. Because He is a perfect gentleman. Because He's a perfect gentleman, He will only do this to you based on your consent. Last night we talked about the power of choice. Remember that? God never forces Himself upon you. He He respects the power of choice that He has endowed you with. And He will respect it so much that even if you choose to reject Him, He will accept it. That is the kind of God that we serve. But we also know He's a loving God. We also know that He's a God that yearns to give us the abundant life that He wants us to have. That abundant life that is realized in Jesus Christ. And He can do for you, brothers and sisters, what no other person can. No other person can do this for you. There's some single people out there that say, Oh, you know, if I, find, if I get together with that, that person, I'm sure that person will make me a better person. No! No person can make you a better person but Jesus. Jesus is the only one you can rely on. Amen. And we see in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world. Let's read this together. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, you cannot save yourself. I cannot, my, I cannot save myself. That is impossible. But when we believe that God loves you, believe He also can save you. Amen? And number four, confess your sins to Jesus and believe that you are forgiven. You know, when you confess your sins, you claim the promise of God's Word that He will forgive you. You know, I have struggled with this growing up as a struggling Christian. I still struggle, but I remember when I was, I was like, I just couldn't overcome one particular sin. And I would fall into the sin over and over again, and, I would, and every time I fell into it, I was devastated. I was, I was, I was 
pressed down with guilt. I said, there's no way that God can accept me because I failed him again. And I watched these televangelists on television who said, you know, brothers and sisters, don't worry. God will give you a second chance. And I listened to that. I said, yes, but I used up my second chance. I used my third, fourth, fifth, tenth, twentieth chance. So there's no hope for me. And I felt really awful. And, and over time, I'd, I'd, I'd start to feel better. And I'd, I'd inch my way back to God. But then I'd fall into that sin again. I'd be like, oh, hold no. And I'd like be separated from God again. And this mad cycle continued. But what I fail to realize is that I have to trust God when He says, I forgave you. Yeah. You don't have to worry about whether or not you're worthy to be forgiven. I forgive you. And we see in John, 1 John 1, 9, this is a promise that I have memorized ever since. This is a promise that has always given me encouragement ever, every, every time the devil tries to bring things to me saying, you think you deserve God's mercy? God will not accept you. Look at how many times you failed Him. You're a joke to Him. Whenever I hear though that word, that that voice, and that guilt, I recite this verse. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I claim that promise every time. You can claim that promise too. Believe that He will forgive you. Amen. Number five, lastly, claim His gift of eternal life and decide, decide to serve Him forever. He is more than willing. He promises that when we confess our sins, He's willing to cleanse us. He's willing to create in us a clean heart, a new heart, and we are counted righteous before Him. And Jesus has stood in our place as a substitute. And we have believed in faith. And now... This is, the, this is the best part. Our names are written in the book of life. Our names are written in your... If, if your name is in the book of life, that's a wonderful thing, friends. And we believe that Jesus, from that moment on, when we follow these five steps, you know what happens? Jesus comes into our hearts. He comes into our lives. He lives within us. And He can keep us pure by the same power that He used to make us pure. Are you struggling with a temper? Do, are you struggling with a foul mouth and you curse and swear? Do you have a drinking problem? Do you have a gambling problem? Whatever it may be, friends, believe that Jesus can give you that power to become pure. And He can do that work in you. When we come to Jesus and say, Lord God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I cannot save myself. I know I cannot redeem myself. Lord, You are my Lamb. You are the Lamb of Revelation. I like what one pastor said. He said it very clear in a concise way. He said this, Here is a man or woman born in sin. This past is ridiculed with wicked choices. In some way, the love of God shining from the cross of Calvary reaches his heart. He yields, repents, confesses, and by faith claims Christ as his Savior. And get what happens next. The instant that is done, he is accepted as a child of God. His sins are all forgiven. 
His guilt is canceled. He is accounted righteous and stands approved, justified before God. This amazing, miraculous change may take place in a short moment. This is what the Bible calls righteousness by faith. Praise God for His abundant mercy and provision for us. It's beautiful. Righteousness by faith. The moment that we accept Him, the moment that we go through those five steps, we accept Him, we are His child. And that change takes place in a moment. Let's take a look at one of my favorite verses. 2 Corinthians 5.17 2 Corinthians 5.17 I believe we're back to the beginning, aren't we? Table number one. Let's have someone else from table number one read 2 Corinthians 5.17, page 1114. I'm sorry, I should give the page number first. Uh, page 1114, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And if we could have one of the nice people at this table here, table number one, someone can read that for us. 2 Corinthians 5.17, page 1114. Ah, well, so you see, I love this text. If anyone is in Christ, what do they they become? They become a new creation, right? All things are passed away, and all things have become new. So get this, when Jesus comes into your heart, the change that you can expect to see is that the sinful things that you once loved, you will now hate. And the life of purity and holiness, the things that you despised and hated, you now love. Because Christ is now in you, you see. Christ is doing that work from the inside out. John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. There may be somebody here tonight that you feel like you're not worthy enough before God. There may be somebody here tonight who thinks that they have gone far, they're too far gone to accept Jesus. But God has promised to receive us, and He promises that to anyone who comes to Him. He will not turn away anyone. And Jesus Himself says that. He is not a liar. Maybe the devil has given us a wrong perception of who God is, Or maybe he makes you think that he cannot or will not accept you. Don't believe that. Believe God's promise and come to him tonight. Amen? We see that Jesus on the cross is where the love of God is revealed. The death of Jesus, where God revealed to the whole world how much he cares. The crown of thorns was pressed upon his head and your sin is laid upon his shoulders. There is no greater love in the universe than self-sacrificing, unselfish love of God. No one will be able to do what Jesus has done for you. And we see there's a story. Many years ago during the time in Rwanda, several severe pain and heartache, a Christian pastor and his two sons were brutally murdered by a violent mob. And the only survivor was the wife. 
But she herself witnessed as a young man with a machete killed one of her sons before she herself has been attacked and left for dead. And with many others in that churchyard that day, it was a massacre. The young man who killed her son fled and hid in the mountains. But after about three years, she saw him again. How do you think she reacted? Instead of hatred, the love of God flowed out toward the young man who actually was actually a member of their church. Even her husband baptized that young man that killed her son. And she told this young man, you must become my son. And she visited him regularly in the prison. He cared for him, visited him every week. And once he came out of prison, he came to live with her in her home. Can you imagine that? And this young man sensed the love and forgiveness of Adelaide, that was her name, and it broke his heart. He had never experienced love like this before. And friends, in the same way, when we come to Jesus, we too experience a love that has never been experienced like that before. The one who knows us best, who loves us, His grace, mercy, and forgiveness are reaching out to you right now. Salvation is yours for the asking. I'd like to ask these questions as we're drawing to a close. Are you thirsty for His love? Are you thirsty for His forgiveness, His mercy? Are you so thirsty that you want more and more of His grace? Have you come to the foot of the cross where this guilt problem can be solved once and for all? Why not come there right now? Why not come there tonight? Come to the hero of the book of Revelation and call him your Lord. And if you've come before in the past, why don't you recommit your life to him today? If you've committed your life to him once and have drifted away, He's looking for you to return. He's yearning for you to come back. He is lonely without you. And his peace and joy can be yours. If you have never accepted him before, why not do it tonight? My friends, I'd like to ask the table leaders to pass out a card. There's a card for every uh, table. And this card, I want you to prayerfully consider the decisions on this card. We're going to go over this in a moment. So don't mark it just yet, but I want you to listen to a song that my wife will be playing tonight as we consider this decision. So my wife will sing the first verse of this song. And then we'll make the decisions and she'll sing the second verse after the decisions are being made.
like the song says, only Jesus can satisfy your soul tonight. I'd like you to take your card right now. And you're going to notice that there's five boxes. And we're going to read each one. I'd like you to write your name on this card. And put a check mark on each box based on what you feel the Lord is asking you to do tonight. Number one. I understand that salvation is a free gift from God through faith in Christ that I cannot earn. I can only depend on His righteousness for salvation. If you believe that with all your heart, you can put a check mark there in box number one. Number two, tonight I would like to accept Jesus as my Savior, ask Him to forgive my sins live in my heart, and transform my life. And friends, just like the song says, Jesus is the only one that can satisfy us. He's the only one that can make that change possible in our lives. If you have not experienced that, I encourage you to put a check mark in number two and say, Lord, I want to experience that tonight. And if you have already, and you want to experience that daily, moment by moment, by all means, check that as well. Number three, I once knew Jesus but fell away. It is my decision to surrender my heart to Him again tonight and let Him be the Lord of my life. Maybe there's somebody here that has come to the seminar and, and praise the Lord that you're here, but you've turned away from the Lord. You once knew Him, but you, like the product son, turned away. But now you sense the Holy Spirit bringing you back, calling you back to the loving arms of our Heavenly Father. And if you want to say, I want to surrender my heart to Him again tonight, put a check mark there, number three. And number four, I am interested in baptism or rebaptism. Maybe some of you have never made that decision for baptism, but you want to make that decision tonight. By all means, put that check mark there in number four. Perhaps there are some who have made that decision already, but your spiritual life is stagnant. It's not going anywhere. You feel that you're just kind of going through the motions. It's not real. Something's missing. And you want to say, Lord, I want to reconsecrate myself to you in baptism. If that's something that the Holy Spirit is impressing upon your heart to do tonight, please put a check mark there in number four. And finally, number five. I would like information on how to have a living relationship with Christ. Maybe what we went over today, you're saying, this is great stuff, but how can I implement it in my life? I have so much stuff going on. I, I'm a mess. And you need guidance. You need help. Put a check mark there on number five. And we'll give the help that you need. And also, this is not in your card. But maybe there's some of you here that want to have a visit with me, the pastor or, or the elder, and you'd like to just discuss some things that are on your heart, um, things that you want to discuss, spiritual things that you're coping with. Put a V next to the top right corner of that white area if you want to visit with myself. And I'll be more than happy to visit with you and give some time for you. And so we're going to go ahead and close with one, the final song, the final verse, and we'll close with prayer. Um, when you're done, 
filling out your card during the second stanza, please hand it to a table leader in your group. God loves you, and I want to encourage you to follow those five steps and ask that the Lord will do that work in you starting tonight. Would you do that? I'd like to pray for you tonight as we close. So if you bow your heads with me as we close our time together. Heavenly Father, you are a great, long-suffering, loving, kind God abounding in mercy and grace towards us lost humanity. And Lord, we come before you tonight acknowledging that we have been once again affirmed by your word, that your promises are true, that you will do what you have said to do. All we must do is accept and come before you and give you that permission as we open our hearts to you to do that work in us. And Lord, we pray that you'll do that work in us tonight. Be with each and every person here. They're all precious in your sight, Lord. They're all your children. Lord, I pray that you'll please help them to see you as the great burden bearer in their lives. They don't have to go at it alone. You are there for them, ready at a beck and call. And Lord, we are so grateful that Jesus has borne the guilt and shame for us on that cross on Calvary so that we can look forward to a new life new transformation that can take place as you come into our hearts and lives. So we pray for that now. Come into our hearts, we pray tonight. We love you, and we thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.